0: Welcome to the DTB podcast for January 2016, volume 54, number one. My name is David Fazakli and I'm DTB's deputy editor. Hello, and I'm James Cave. I'm editor-in-chief. I suppose the first thing we should say is happy new year and welcome to 2016.
1: Yes, seasonal greetings all round.
0: So our editorial this month discusses the NHS health check in England. These were introduced in 2009 and offered to anyone without cardiovascular disease between the ages of 40 and 70 years. So what is it they were designed to do? I mean, I think the idea behind this was there's always been a concern
1: that the NHS has failed to reach certain people. And many of the studies have shown perhaps as many as 19% of the population, particularly men of a certain age, say between 40 and 74, but also women as well, just don't, see their doctor and don't get a health check and there was concern that if we could pick up these people pick up their blood pressures and cholesterols early on we would save lives by reducing the instance of heart disease and stroke
0: so excellent rationale behind the policy absolutely yeah and designed to attract or to at least prevent what sort of numbers were they hoping well, they were talking about 1,600 heart attacks, 650 premature deaths, and
1: 4,000 new cases of diabetes annually. That was the sort of numbers being bandied around. So that sounds great, but not everyone's in favour. No, I mean, I think the difficulty always with these situations is that the numbers always rely on being able to attract the people that are least likely to come and see you. It's the... Law of Diminishing Returns. So to really get the people who are most at risk, you have to find and attract the people who are really not your usual doctor presenters. And, of course, I think one of the concerns has been that this would attract the worried. Well, there'd be an awful lot of action and movement just really looking at people who perhaps have already been quite careful with their health and those people who perhaps aren't so careful or, or haven't heard the messages would still not attend and
0: therefore the numbers being banded about would never be reached. So the original calculations and the assessment of cost effectiveness was done on what sort of uptake rate? So I think they were talking about 75%. And of
1: course, we've got nowhere near that over the last few years. I think at the last figures published showed a 21% uptake with lower uptake
0: in certain groups. So for example, even lower groups amongst Afro-Caribbean and Chinese populations. So a suggestion that it's not reaching the hard to access population. Precisely, precisely. So the criticisms that people had early on have seemed to have been founded out. So this seems a bit like a mass screening programme. Exactly. did it go through the same processes as you'd expect any screening intervention?
1: No, and I think the difficulty here is that all the figures were based on the idea of uptake, and yet there was no attempt to check to see whether that sort of uptake would be achieved. And so as a consequence, uh, if you like, Wilson's old criteria that we all learned about really haven't been met with
0: this. So what's, what should happen?
1: Well, I think the difficulty here is that I think there's a has to be a balance between public health doing the right thing for a population, but also making sure that they're pragmatic and have the evidence to support that. And what's happened in this case is that really hasn't been the evidence to support this, either from Cochrane or anyone else, and as a consequence, one might consider this as being a bit of a waste of money.
0: So need to bring the evidence we do know in terms of what other I- interventions in terms of health screening have told us, along with the experience of real life, of what's happened, and perhaps time to review the policy again? Definitely. And I think the difficulty always with this is if we are recycling money back into the primary care from other areas, we've got to make sure we get best value. Okay. Thank you very much. So our first article this month looks at the issue of adolescent adherence and some of the problems associated with it. I suppose my first question is is adherence a particularly different issue amongst adolescents than it is in the rest of the population?
1: Well, I think I think most clinicians who've had to work with adolescents will entirely recognize the scenario of the parents tearing their hair out and the adolescent sitting there Sort of just not engaging in an outpatient clinic or in a in a surgery. You know, all around the country, we as clinicians recognise that enormously. And of course, the incidence of long term conditions in children and adolescents is rising year on year, particularly conditions such as diabetes. And so, this is a real, really important issue. And what what affects it? Well, uh, it's it's a multi faceted problem this so we've got family issues we've got the actual condition itself we've got what impact the medication treatment has on the adolescent and their ability and how they're seen by their peers so the problem with this
0: is there isn't a single answer it is an incredibly complex area and presumably changes throughout adolescence as the young person develops their attitudes and interests and moods change absolutely and i think what was fascinating about looking when we began to
1: look at the evidence behind this is that there's actually pretty good evidence that this you know intervening and doing something to improve ad- adherence actually does work not only in improving adherence but you can actually show you improve health outcomes if you really try hard enough but no simple one answer but this is the difficult thing if you're going to read our article hoping i'm going to find the holy grail the answer is You're not, but
0: you may find quite a few quite shiny cups. And there seem to be some things about changing the sort of consultation process as well as doing things that might help them practically. That's it. I think the most important thing, and we go through this for you in a number of different
1: issues, but one of them is around engaging with the adolescent and finding out what their health beliefs are what impact their conditions having on them so there's if you like there's the personal issue there's also the surrounding issue around their families and also there's if you like the stuff which perhaps we all think of immediately which is around the technology and whether you can use apps or
0: other sorts of smartphones as a way of improving adherence as well so lots of lots of things to take into account but it's not an easy one it's not an easy one so our second article this month reviews the management of dry eye and my first question james is is this a common problem in primary care yes this, this is i think pretty common i mean the figures
1: that people are band around is anything between eight percent and a third of, of adult population will have dry eyes at some point
0: and it's not as simple as dry eyes dry eye there are different types of dry eye yeah this is i mean we, we go into this and of detail but
1: there are different types of dry eye and of course the different type of dry eye may alter your
0: approach to how you manage it and the consequences of you know, is this just something that you, you treat and there aren't any serious consequences or is there a problem with the severe end of disease? So this is it. The, the issue here is that there is some significant uh, problems. If you have
1: severe dry eyes, you can actually get damage to the corneal surface and that can have an impact on vision. And of course you've got just the day-to-day issues around soreness, inability to read, all those sorts of things. So this can have quite a significant impact on people's
0: quality of life. Uh, Is there anything we can do to assess, you know, do symptoms relate particularly well with severity, or is there anything we can do to measure symptoms?
1: There are some symptom scores, and we do give details of one in particular, which I think is quite helpful. Because I think one of the difficulties we have in primary care is there isn't any national guidelines for this, there are no fantastic algorithms where you just start at the top and by the time you get to the bottom you've got the person sorted out so we really have tried to offer some helpful advice to primary care gps and pharmacists on um, how to assess dry eyes and how to look at it and i think this is one of the difficulties is that dry eyes although they're incredibly common actually the evidence base
0: and the support is really just not there and it does seem that as we went through the article there's a confusion between what products are, are prescription medicines and therefore being licensed as medicines and which are medical devices and therefore have gone through a slightly different process with a different evidence base.
1: And this is I think I have to say
0: this is a little
1: bit naughty on the place of pharma because it seems to be that, of course, if you license a product as a device, you don't have to have the same evidence base behind it. And I think, therefore, you can have a product which one company has licensed as a prescription medicine and another company has licensed as a device. So the the evidence base is difficult and uh, there's very little comparative data between them. So there is really, if you were hoping that we were going to produce a beautifully crafted, as usually, I'd say didactic algorithm of how to manage dry eyes you might be a little bit disappointed with this but I think what we do is demonstrate actually the evidence base is poor and it really is about looking at the product which most
0: matches the patient's condition and is most cost effective. And certainly we have a discussion as well about preservatives and and much as we did in the article about glaucoma there's yep. an issue with preservatives. That's right so benzalkonium chloride is the classic preservative used
1: and there's been a lot of talk and there are some international guidelines that suggest that in certain situations you should not use drops with preservatives and a lot of that is based on some quite weak evidence so we look at all that and I think we have come up with a very simple approach to how you should manage patients with or without
0: the preservative eye drops. But again it feels much as we said in the Glaucoma article that that at the end it needs to be a a local collective decision between uh, general practice, primary care, and secondary care specialists on optometrists as to what the algorithm is and what are the product choices first a- and second. Absolutely. Because, because also the
1: difference in costs can be enormous between, you know, a pound a month to 26 pounds a month. So it's a really
0: important area to get right. So even specialists who are advising on treatment should have some reflection on the costs and the impact on absolutely right because the difficulty we have of course is if a specialist
1: prescribes something then the risk is the gp ends up prescribing that as a repeat medication
0: and and that cost is locked in then to the system okay thank you very much to read these and any of our articles please visit our website at dtb.bmj.com and if you have any comments or criticisms or suggestions, please email us at dtbeditor at bmj.com. Thank you for listening.